Welcome back to The Law. I am DK Williams, and this is episode 25, Tim's The Indiana. Now, this case came out just last week on February 20th, 2019. So you may have heard about it. You probably did. It was all over the news. This was a unanimous decision, 9-0, that held the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution applies to the states. Now, it deals with civil forfeiture, but it's not really about civil forfeiture. As a constitutional matter, this case is about incorporation of the excessive fines clause in the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution to the states, and we'll explain that. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, follow me on social media, Twitter, at BlueCarp, Facebook.com, slash BlueCarp. Love to hear from you, whatever your thoughts are, any requests, I'll be glad to take them, uh, I'll be glad to listen to them. I've done a couple podcasts that were on cases requested by folks, so definitely let me know which ones you would like to hear. And wherever you're listening, like, comment, subscribe, and share, if you're so inclined. All right, who are the name participants? Who are the people in this case? Well, Tim's, and that's spelled T-I-M-B-S, is Tyson Tim's. He pled guilty to a drug offense in Indiana, and that's what started this entire process that got us all the way up to this case at the U.S. Supreme Court. And we'll talk about what he did and what happened to him. So it was a 9-0 decision, and this is the roster. And I'm in, intrigued by who appoints the, each justice, and, and now I'm looking at how old they each are, because you got to keep an eye on who might be uh, replaced. I know the progressives and the Democrats are very, very concerned that Trump might get to make another appointment before the 2020 election. So this is what we've got. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the opinion for the court. She was appointed by Clinton in 1993. Now, I looked this up. According to CNN, the average mortality in the United States for the average time that you died, the the average death age of women in the United States is 81 years old. And for men, it's 76 years. So I'm looking at the age of each of the Supreme Court justices and looking where they are in relation to the average lifespan. So RBG wrote the opinion. She's 85 years old. So she's four years older than 81, the average age at which women pass away in the United States. So everybody joined her. And let's talk about each one of them. John Roberts, who's the chief justice. George W. Bush nominated him as chief justice in 05. He's 64 years old. So he's got 12 more years before that average mortality rate. Clarence Thomas, appointed by George H.W. Bush in 91. He's 70, so he's got six more years. Stephen Breyer, who was appointed by Clinton in 94. He's 80, so he's four years beyond the average. Samuel Alito, appointed by George W. Bush in 06. He's 68, so he's got eight more years before he gets to the average. Sonia Sotomayor, appointed by Obama in 09. She's 64. She's got 17 years left. Elena Kagan, also appointed by Obama in 2010. She's 58. She's got 23 years left. Neil Gorsuch, Trump in 2017. He's 51. And he's got 25 more years until he reaches that average age. Brett Kavanaugh, also nominated by Trump in 2018. Same age, 25 more years before he reached that average age of 76 for men in the United States. So Gorsuch wrote a separate concurrence, just a one-pager. We'll talk about why. Clarence Thomas wrote a much more extensive concurrence, but they both agreed with the result. So in the concurrence, they both agreed that Gorsuch and Thomas, that the excessive fines clause of the U.S. Constitution applied to the states pursuant to the 14th Amendment. 
they would have just used the privileges and immunities provision in the 14th Amendment and not the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. We're really getting into the weeds here. I know it. Same result. They just would have gotten to it at a different way. And we'll talk about that as we get into it here shortly. And just a reminder, read cases if you really want to understand them or have an idea what they're really about. You can listen to me. You can listen to other people. And they might, we might give you some ideas about what they say. But unless you read them yourself... You're taking somebody else's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it. I'm doing my best to give you my perspective on it, but it's my perspective. Other people disagree, and far too many people, and particularly politicians, have strong opinions about cases they clearly have not read. You'll see them banging on the table on cable news shows or getting all excited on the radio, and it's clear they haven't read what they're talking about. And I'll say this as politely as I can. That's ignorant. If you haven't read a judicial opinion, your opinion of it is based on someone else's opinion of it, not the case itself. And to make it worse, many of the people on TV and radio giving you an opinion haven't read it either. So in that case, you're basing your opinion, not on the words written by the court, but you're basing your opinion on someone else's opinion who hasn't read it either. You can see how this common phenomenon perpetuates ignorance. I think it's very prevalent in cases like Citizens United. We talked about that in episode two. The very least we can do is not perpetuate that ignorance. We can acknowledge when we haven't read it that we haven't read it. This is what I've heard about it. This is my understanding of it, but I haven't read it. And if more people would just say that, we'd have a lot better dialogue about these cases. And that's why I always put a link to the text of the case, whichever one I'm talking about, in the show notes so you can click on that and read it if you want. Makes it easier. All right, this case covers some significant history. Back to the Magna Carta, the history of excessive fines, and why it's in the U.S. Constitution to begin with and where it came from. Now, every state now, every all 50 states, have their own version of the excessive fine clause in their own state constitution. So the government is banned from imposing excessive fines. For example, Colorado, the language is identical to the U.S. Constitution's Eighth Amendment. The state of Colorado, for example, just has a different numbering system. So in the, the state constitution of Colorado, it's Article 2 called the Bill of Rights. And again, quick aside, you guys know, better name for it is the Bill of Restrictions because it doesn't give you rights. It restricts the government. So in Article 2 of the State Constitution of Colorado, it's Section 20, titled Excessive Bail, Fines, or Punishment. And then the rest of it is verbatim of the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which is excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So this case is all about those four words, nor excessive fines imposed. Does that apply to the states via the U.S. Constitution? Now, I know you might be saying, well, Dave, didn't you just say all the state constitutions have the same thing? So why does it matter? Excellent question. But the states are free to interpret their constitution differently than the U.S. Supreme Court interprets the federal constitution, even if it's the exact same language. So if the federal constitution applies to the states, what the U.S. Supreme Court says goes regardless of how the state Supreme Court might interpret its version of the same thing. All right, from the opinion itself, Ruth Bader Ginsburg writes to explain what's going on. Tyson Timms pleaded guilty in Indiana State Court to dealing in a controlled substance and commercy to commit theft. Let's stop right there. Let me address this. She says Tyson Timms pleaded guilty. You can say pleaded or you can say pled. I prefer pled. It's one less syllable and it sounds better. And it's the extra syllable is superfluous. If you can say it in one less syllable, half the syllables. This isn't a syllable thing, but a letter thing. My daughter's middle name is Anne without the E in the end. The E serves no purpose. It's unnecessary, like that extra syllable in pleaded. That E is superfluous. So he spelled it without the E. Same 
Principal, I prefer pled. Pleaded has an unnecessary E and a D. And my apologies to those ands with an E in the end of their name. You didn't name yourself, and it's still a beautiful name. All right, back to the facts as spelled out by the Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The trial court sentenced Tim, Tim's, to one year of home detention and five years of probation, which included a court-supervised addiction treatment program. The sentence also required Tim's to pay fees and costs, totaling $1,203. At the time of Tim's arrest... And that's how they did it. Tim's, like Bridget Jones's, I would just make it Tim's with the apostrophe, but that's me. At the time of his arrest, the police seized his vehicle, a Land Rover SUV. Tim's had purchased for about $42,000. Tim's paid for the vehicle with money he received from an insurance policy when his father died. All right, so we know that we know where he got the money for this Land Rover. He didn't get it from selling drugs. He got it from proceeds of being a beneficiary of his father's life insurance policy. So he got it legitimately. But the police, the state, the government, and his actors, his agents, took it. I mean, it's straight up theft. But there's a legal process for this, and it's been accepted. But that's something we really have to try to rectify and end that legalized highway robbery. All of the excuses that government uses to justify that theft are absurd. Every single last one of them. In this case, the state engaged a private law firm to bring a civil suit for forfeiture of Tim's Land Rover, charging that the vehicle had been used to transport heroin. Okay, I would never take that kind of a case. Not now, anyway. When I was younger and had a boss, I probably would. I wouldn't have had the strength and moral conviction back then. But this private law firm chose to take this case to sue the Land Rover, in essence, to take it away from its rightful owner. This law firm thought it was perfectly cool to get paid from the government, take government money in an effort to take away a guy's privately owned $42,000 car, which was purchased legitimately with life insurance money, not drug money. The, the state says, no, it's not drug money. The state admits where he got the money from. It's completely legitimate. So in my mind, that law firm is an accomplice to attempted theft. I don't care what the constitutional arguments are. Right and wrong are not concepts that are enshrined in the Constitution. And neither is civil asset forfeiture for that matter. Lawyers aren't bus drivers. A bus driver has to stop and take anyone who has a fare onto the bus. Lawyers don't have to take every paying customer. But that's the world we have today. Plenty of lawyers out there willing to take money to justify government theft under the pretext of law enforcement. Hey, they got to get paid, right? That's all. That's what matters to far too many people, not principals. All right, back to the Timses case. Ginsburg wrote, Although finding that Timses vehicle had been used to facilitate violation of a criminal statute, the court, the trial court, denied the requested forfeiture, observing that Tim's had recently purchased the vehicle for $42,000, which is more than four times the maximum $10,000 monetary fine accessible against him under the drug conviction. RBG continues, Forfeiture of the Land Rover the trial court determined in Indiana, would be grossly disproportionate to the gravity of Timms's offense, hence unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause. The Indiana Court of Appeals affirmed that, but the Indiana Supreme Court reversed it. The Indiana Supreme Court didn't get to whether or not the forfeiture was going to be excessive or not. Instead, it said that the excessive fines clause of the U.S. Constitution in the Eighth Amendment applies only to federal action and is inapplicable to state action. U.S. Supreme Court granted certiorari, which means they agreed to hear it. So what's the legal significance, the specific holding of this case? Because it's really not about civil asset forfeiture. It's about incorporation of the excessive fines clause to the states. Incorporation just means the application of the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause to the states. So this is how RBG presented it. She wrote, The question presented, is the Eighth Amendment's 
excessive fines clause to the U.S. Constitution and incorporated protection applicable to the states under the 14th Amendment's due process clause, like the 8th Amendment's proscriptions, bans of cruel and unusual punishment and excessive bail, which are also in the 8th Amendment. The protection against excessive fines guards against abuses of government's punitive or criminal law enforcement authority. That's a good thing. The safeguard she wrote, we hold, is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty with deep roots in our history and tradition. The excessive fines clause is therefore incorporated by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Like I mentioned earlier, it was Gorsuch and Thomas say the excessive fines clause is incorporated through the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment and not the due process clause. But the majority says, no, it's the due process clause. And there's a bunch of history about that. And Thomas in his concurrence writes about why that's also wrong. Same result, however. So there's your question presented in the Supreme Court's ultimate answer. Then they explain it like they normally do. They tell you what they rule and then they tell you how they got there. So they jump right into a bunch of legal history of the excessive fines, the prohibition of excessive fines to be imposed upon people, citizens, and the doctrine of incorporation. That's whereby the Supreme Court has applied the Bill of Rights on a case-by-case basis to the states. Now, there's lots of legal thought out there, especially among libertarians, legal libertarian scholars, that this incorporation doctrine is just absolutely wrong. And I'll probably get into that more in a later podcast, but right or wrong, it exists. And in this case, a unanimous Supreme Court accepts it without question. So that's what we're going to talk about. But you know that some people don't think it should be the way the Supreme Court reads cases. Now, and we've mentioned this multiple times in previous podcasts because that 14th Amendment has applied many, many times to the Supreme Court's decisions as they apply to state action of states themselves, not the federal government. I've gone over the basic idea. So the Supreme Court has incorporated the Bill of Rights, again, more properly, the Bill of Government Restrictions, because it doesn't give you the right to free speech, for example. It says Congress shall make no law infringing on your right, your right that already exists, your natural rights. But the Supreme Court has incorporated these Bill of Rights on a piecemeal basis. And here's the Supreme Court, in this case, explaining that incorporation. When ratified in 1791, the Bill of Rights restrictions, applied only to the federal government. The constitutional amendments adopted in the aftermath of the Civil War, however, fundamentally altered our country's federal system. With only a handful of exceptions, this court has held that the 14th Amendment's due process clause incorporates the protections contained in the Bill of Rights, rendering them applicable to the states. A Bill of Rights protection is incorporated, we have explained, if it is fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty or deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. That's why they use that language a little bit earlier, because they're getting to the citation of the precedent where that language comes from. So those two phrases were made up by the Supreme Court a long time ago. In the court's opinion, it explains how they're going to decide what parts of the Bill of Rights, Bill of Restrictions, to apply to the states. What restrictions on the federal government also restrict the state governments. RBG in this unanimous Supreme Court decision goes on. Incorporated Bill of Rights guarantees are enforced against the states under the 14th Amendment according to the same standards that protect those personal rights against federal encroachment. Thus, if a Bill of Rights protection is incorporated, there is no daylight between the federal and state conduct it prohibits or requires. And that no daylight phrase, she's just saying that we might have written a whole bunch of stuff on how particular portion of the Bill of Rights applies to the federal government. And once we apply it to the states, All of that law applies to the states, too. We're not going to have separate cases where we apply it to the feds and where where we apply it to the states. However we apply it to the feds, 
also applies to the states. That's what she's saying right there. Court goes on, the 14th Amendment we hold incorporates this protection. In other words, the 14th Amendment makes the excessive fines provision, the banning of excessive fines in the 8th Amendment applicable to the states. They dig deep into history here, all the way back to the Magna Carta in 1215. They say this, that the Magna Carta was written and it gave some protections about excessive fines. Quote, despite Magna Carta, imposition of excessive fines persisted. The 17th century Stuart kings, in particular, were criticized for using large fines to raise revenue, harass their political foes, and indefinitely detain those unable to pay. So that's kind of interesting in my opinion. Every law has been used to harass political foes. It's not a new thing. It certainly wasn't a new thing to the British monarchy. And look at the book uh, Three Felonies a Day. The government can't prosecute everyone if we're all breaking the law three times a day and we're committing three felonies a day. They can't, they can't prosecute all of us. But if you get on the wrong side of someone politically connected, they'll find a law you broke and charge you with it and at least force you to spend years defending those charges. So that's not a new thing. Supreme Court works through a bunch more history and they point out that in 1787, the constitutions of eight states accounting for 70% of the U.S. population, forbade excessive fines. So that's two years before the Constitution was adopted. The federal Constitution was adopted. Eight states had done the same thing in their state Constitution. The court goes on. An even broader consensus obtained in 1868 upon ratification of the 14th Amendment by then the constitutions of 35 of the 37 states expressly prohibited excessive fines. RBG continues, notwithstanding the state's apparent agreement that the right guaranteed by the excessive fines clause was fundamental, abuses continued. Following the Civil War, southern states enacted black codes to subjugate newly freed slaves and maintain the pre-war racial hierarchy. Among those laws provisions were draconian fines for violating broad proscriptions on vagrancy and other dubious offenses. Then the Supreme Court goes on they talk about how these draconian fines, these heavy fines for vague offenses were used to coerce involuntary labor. In other words, if you can't pay your fine, you have to work it off, which is kind of like slavery, which is what was supposed to have ended. So the court goes on. Even absent a political motive, fines may be employed in a measure out of accord with the penal goals of retribution and deterrence. For fines are a source of revenue while other forms of punishment cost the state money. So they're saying, even if you're not trying to harass somebody or punish somebody with your excessive fines, you might just do it because you get money out of it, right? I'm not harassing you. I just want your money so I can do more stuff and give it away to my people that are connected to me, people to my donors or to my constituents so I can get more votes. And if you're going to put somebody in jail, that costs the state money. But if you can just find them, it doesn't cost you anything and you get money. The court goes on, and this is important. It makes sense to scrutinize governmental action more closely when the state stands to benefit. This concern is scarcely hypothetical. All right, so now this case, as we've said, does not ban asset forfeiture in any way. It applies the excessive fines provision to the states when the state sees assets. But when the right case comes along, this language about scrutinizing governmental action when they're making money off of it, this language seems to me that it would certainly apply to any analysis of civil asset forfeiture, which is what they are doing. When they they take away people's property and cash and money, they stand to benefit. And that action should be scrutinized closely. RBG goes on. In short, the historical and logical case for concluding that the 14th Amendment incorporates the excessive fines clause is overwhelming. So that's their conclusion to that part. Then Indiana argued that the excessive fines clause doesn't apply to civil forfeiture at all, but the U.S. Supreme Court had already ruled that it did apply when they were discussing federal civil forfeiture. So when they were saying that the feds were taking people's property, that the Eighth Amendment ban on excessive fines applied, then it also applies to the states once we incorporate it. We're not going to overturn Austin 
which was also a unanimous decision. So Indiana, in effect, wanted them to overturn this Alston decision, which is a 1993 case. wasn't It's not that old in the big scheme of things. And the court wasn't going to do that. So remember about incorporation. The entire point of the 14th Amendment was to uh, prohibit the states from doing certain things, whereas the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Restrictions, and the U.S. Constitution only applied to the federal government. Now, the 14th Amendment says, I mean, it's directly addressing the states. It says, among other things, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the U.S., nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So the theory is that the Bill of Rights, the Federal Bill of Rights, the restrictions on the federal government, includes the privileges and immunities enjoyed by citizens of the U.S., and that the states can't deny citizens, which are specifically former slaves and African Americans in general, that those privileges and immunities and the equal protection of laws can't be denied by the states. Now, again, the concurrences, Gorsuch and Thomas write that the privileges and immunities part of the 14th Amendment is what incorporates this part of the Bill of Rights to the states. The majority, however, says it's the due process part of the 14th Amendment. I agree with Thomas, and he's, he writes an extensive explanation of why he's right. But in this case, the outcome isn't affected by which portion of the 14th Amendment is used to incorporate the excessive fines clause of the 8th Amendment. And again, like I said, there's substantial body of thought as to why the 14th Amendment wasn't meant to incorporate the Bill of Rights, but that's what happens. And that's the holding of Thames versus Indiana, that the prohibition of excessive fines contained in the 8th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution applies to the states via the 14th Amendment. But get this, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of Thames, but that doesn't mean Thames is going to get his car back. Listen to this language. This is how the Supreme Court ruled, and you'll see language like this in lots and lots of Supreme Court cases, state Supreme Court and U.S. Supreme Court. So the U.S. Supreme Court, as it applies to Thames, says, quote, the judgment of the Indiana Supreme Court is vacated and the case is remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. Remanded means we're sending it back to Indiana. Further proceedings means they have to rewrite their opinion. They got to hear this again and they have to do it in light of what we just told them. So Indiana Supreme Court, you are wrong. We're told you why you're wrong. Now fix why you were wrong before and make another ruling. So Indiana has to apply the federal excessive fines clause to the Indiana courts and the Indiana Supreme Court ultimately could apply it apply the Eighth Amendment excessive fines clause to Tim's, and they could say that that $42,000 forfeiture was not excessive, even when the statutory fine was limited at $10,000. They could conceivably come up with that. And if they did, that would uphold the forfeiture. And then if they did that, Tim's would be forced to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear it again, and they may or may not. U.S. Supreme Court hears a very low percentage of cases when people ask him to hear it. So Tim hasn't got his car back, and we don't know if he ever will, but I'll keep an eye on it. And if if maybe in three years, hopefully it's not that long, we get Tim's gets a ruling on that. Uh, I'll, I'll make a note of it. So Tim's won the case, but he hasn't won back his car. And that's the way the law goes sometimes. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, episode 25, Tim's versus Indiana case that just came out last week. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Find me on Twitter at Blue Carp. Follow me. Follow me on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. Government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.